Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. and welcome to another episode of Most Notorious, where we examine the who's who and the who's not so who (laughs) of history's most notorious crooks, thieves, con artists, and killers. December 29th, 2015, was the 125th anniversary of one of the most horrific tragedies in American history, the massacre at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. I'm fortunate to have as my guest Jerome A. Green, a former research historian for 40 years with the National Park Service, and a prolific author who has written extensively on the Indian Wars of the 19th century. Today we'll be talking about his book, American Carnage, Wounded Knee, 1890. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mr. Green. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it very much. When did you first hear about Wounded Knee? Well... Let me let me just start by saying that I've I've come to view Wounded Knee uh, to uh, follow up on your opening statement. I've come to view it as uh, probably, well, certainly one of the worst, largely government-induced uh, tragedies of the 19th century, and one of the most terrific affairs in all American history. My own first knowledge of Wounded Knee, I I believe, came uh, from junior high school, and I remember uh, reading. Uh, in uh, magazines of uh, pulp magazines of the day this is back in the 1950s and i was a devotee of true west and real west and frontier times and true western adventures and they all had articles about wounded knees so i first learned of it i believe via school and those uh, magazines i remember my grandmother who was born in 1881 i remember uh cornering her in in the house one day and asking her if she ever heard of Wounded Knee. And 
Of course, uh, she thought for a long time and uh, came up with a response that she thought that she had heard about Wounded Knee, but it had been a long time ago in her life, and and she was a, a very old lady at the time. Uh, so that's uh, probably where I first uh, uh, learned about it and kind of grasped an interest in it that followed me through uh, life. I visited the site for the first time in 1969 when I was a graduate student at the University of South Dakota. What was your purpose in writing American Carnage? Well, as I say, I had this uh, crewing uh, interest in the subject. I was very interested in what happened on the ground there. So it was not only to uh, clarify the mechanics of the event as it erupted there at uh, Wounded Knee, but to show how it uh, really became a massacre and uh, why it happened at all, and to explain uh, what transpired following Wounded Knee in regards to the uh, Lakota people who survived. I was very interested in the survivors, too. So that really encapsulates uh, what my interest was. So before we get into the details of the events at Wounded Knee, Let's back up a little bit. Could you talk about who the Lakota people were and what typical life was like for them on the Dakota Plains? The Lakotas were uh, one of the largest uh, tribes to occupy the uh, western uh, plains, the area of the Dakotas and uh, Minnesota, and eventually into uh, eastern Wyoming and uh, southeastern Montana. They were part of a great body of Indian people affiliated with a certain language stock, and or they are called their dialectical differences, and they were like uh, Dakota and Nakota and Lakota, with the Lakota being the biggest block of those people. And actually, they were made up of uh, seven sub-tribes of the uh, Lakota tribe. They moved out onto the plains beginning in the um, 18th century, and they were driven by uh, other tribes that were in turn further east affected by the uh, influx of white settlers. And it was just kind of a gradual pushing movement. And over the years and decades, these people from uh, northwestern Wisconsin and Minnesota began gravitating out onto the plains. And they were drawn by the existence of the buffalo out on the plains. They became a buffalo hunting tribe. They uh, created alliances with certain of the tribes, and particularly uh, the uh, Arapaho people and the uh, Cheyenne people. In uh, 1876, this uh, resulted in the uh, creation of a strong alliance of these three tribes that uh, actually uh, began in earnest uh, fighting against the intrusions of whites all through that region by the mid to late 1870s. And for those who don't know, the Nakoda, Dakota, and Lakota together are often referred to as the Sioux Nation. And for many of my listeners, to help put this into a modern perhaps more familiar context, these are the Indian people portrayed in the Kevin Costner movie, Dances with Wolves. Yes, that's, that was a, a very even-handed uh, look at the Lakotas in particular in that time period that I just discussed, prior to Wounded Knee, in fact. So what was the state of the Lakota nation in the late 1880s, and how did those issues escalate the tension between the Lakota people, and the U.S. government? 
Well, in the uh, decade before Wounded Knee, the Lakota people were beset by what can be viewed as a complex of really complicated issues. Uh, One of them regarded the loss of the Indians' reservation land base, that land that had been given to them by the Fort Laramie Treaty in 1868 that really constituted all of the land uh, west of the Missouri River in what is now South Dakota. In 1876, following the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the Lakota's uh, defeat of Custer's command, the federal government demanded that the Indians give up the Black Hills, which by then had been determined to contain gold. The Black Hills at that time constituted the western one-third of the Great Sioux Reservation that had been given to them by the Fort Laramie Treaty. And the government took that land by outright violating a critical article of the treaty. And by the way, the Supreme Court in 1980 awarded the Lakotas a judgment of $102 million for the illegal taking of their land. So far, the Indians have rejected that payment and have demanded return of the land. Following that taking, in 1882, the government went after more of what was left of the Great Sioux Reservation and again tried to ignore treaty provisions in doing so, this time and again in 1888 without success. By this time, the Black Hills had been settled and businesses and the railroads wanted access between the Missouri River and the hills for commercial purposes. In 1889, under provisions of the new Indian Allotment Act, the government took another 9 million acres of Lakota land, which the Indians uh, conceded, and it was with the intention of opening that land to homesteaders and cattlemen during what uh, everyone anticipated to be a, a Dakota land boom. So to that end, the Great Sioux Reservation was broken up in 1889 and early 1890, and what was left of the Great Sioux Reservation was divided into five smaller reservations. In November 1889, North and South Dakota came into the Union, but the anticipated land boom never happened. And instead, a long-term drought hit the area. And on the reservation lands, the Indians saw their crops destroyed and many of their livestock died. Many whites who lived in eastern Dakota left the area because they couldn't live on the scorched prairie land themselves. And the expected large-scale settlement by whites on the former reservation lands did not happen. The Lakotas were further hit by a plague of disease epidemics, particularly pneumonia and tuberculosis. There were also waves of measles, whooping cough, and influenza that racked the families, and many of their children were killed. And on top of all this, Congress, in an economy move, decided to cut the beef ration that was normally allotted to people by millions of pounds at all the Lakota reservations or agencies. And the consequence was that the Indians faced starvation. So in a sense, uh, survival became the new constant among them. They were desperate. And when the rumors of a new religion that promised a last hope arrived from the West, many of them were ripe for it and were drawn to it. And thus the ghost dance movement took shape in the spring and summer of 1890, and in effect promised a return 
to the old days on the plains with a renewal of Buffalo together with the destruction of the whites who they blamed and who they believed had brought the devastation among them. And these ghost dances really were very unsettling to the whites in the area. Very unsettling to the whites in the area who believed that whenever uh, the Indians were dancing, uh, it spelled outbreak to them. And so they anticipated a great conflict with the Indians. They did not understand the peaceful uh, overtures that were part of the uh, ghost dance and the survival instincts of the dance. Sitting Bull's arrival in 1890 raised tensions even more. Can you talk about Sitting Bull? Who was he? How was he killed? And how did the timing of his death increase the escalation prior to the massacre? Well, Sitting Bull was a prominent Lakota leader among the Hunkpapa subtribe of the uh, Lakotas. In 1890, he was between his mid-50s and uh, could have been as, as old as 60 years old by 1890. Sitting Bull was not a regular chief. He was more of a religious leader and a medicine man who waged a great influence among all the Lakotas across the entire spectrum of the uh, seven sub-tribes. Many whites credited Sitting Bull with Custer's defeat at the Little Bighorn. And following that, Sitting Bull's uh, people fought uh, Colonel Nelson Miles' soldiers before crossing the border into Canada. Miles, of course, would figure in the 1890 Wounded Knee uh, episode, too. But those who went into Canada numbered as many as 4,000 people, Lakotas, and they remained there several years, with most of them returning and surrendering to the government in 1880 and 1881. Sitting Bull finally settled on the Great Sioux Reservation, and in time he became a leading traditionalist or conservative leader. And after the Great Sioux War was divided up, he was on the Standing Rock Reservation as the primary opponent to Agent James McLaughlin. They were not friends in any sense of the word, as I say, uh, Sitting Bull was a traditionalist. He wanted to follow the old ways and did not change his position at all. In 1890, in fact, he became a proponent of the growing ghost dance movement. McLaughlin wanted his influence removed, as did the Army, and in December 1890, McLaughlin engineered his removal at the hands of his Indian policemen. On December 15th, McLaughlin's police arrested Sitting Bull in his cabin along Grand River, and when his supporters came to his rescue, a gunfight erupted and Sitting Bull was killed. The real significance of his death to what happened at uh, Wounded Knee came in the uh, scattering of some of his Hunkpapa followers following his killing. It alarmed many of the uh, Indians, and they ran in all directions uh, from the reservation. Many of them uh, came back and surrendered in the course of a couple of weeks, but some 38 of them fled south and joined Chief Bigfoot's people on the Cheyenne River Reservation. Bigfoot feared an army attack on his own camp and his own followers. And together with those people from Sitting Bull's camp, he started south across the Cheyenne River Reservation towards the Pine Ridge Reservation. 
and Bigfoot was headed there because he'd been invited by Chief Red Cloud to help negotiate with the Army troops. So consequently, when the troops uh, sent to find Bigfoot encountered that chief, finally, his 380 followers included those uh, refugees from Sitting Bull's camp. And all of them eventually became targeted by the soldiers when the uh, shooting erupted at Wounded Knee on December 29, 1890. And what's so heartbreaking about this was the, the giant chasm of misunderstanding between cultures. There was such an inability to communicate based on this lack of understanding. Exactly. There was so much misunderstanding. And don't forget, the government had cut the rations of the Lakota people in the Indian Appropriations Act of 1890. And so for that fiscal year, the people did not have enough food and many of them were placed in a starving condition. So all of this, coupled with the land losses, with the uh, influx of diseases, the uh, loss of their lands, the fears generated by the press, these people were at a point where they questioned whether or not they were going to survive as a people. You briefly mentioned Nelson Miles. He's a pretty important and well-known figure in the history of the Indian Wars of the 19th century. Before we talk about the massacre itself, can you talk about him? Miles was the uh, commanding uh, general. He was a major general. He was the commander of what the Army called the Division of the Missouri, headquartered in Chicago. Miles had been a young man in Massachusetts uh, at the outbreak of the Civil War, He had been a lieutenant in the uh, Massachusetts Volunteer Troops, and over the course of the Civil War, he fought at uh, many places as a junior officer as well as later a a general officer. He uh, commanded uh, troops at places like Petersburg and was uh, just a a very well-known, and his fame uh, grew as the war progressed. He was actually placed in charge of the uh, Confederate ex-president as a prisoner of war immediately following the war, and Miles had risen to the grade of a major general of volunteers by the Civil War's end. After the war, uh, Miles, who had actually married the niece of General Sherman, who became commanding general after the war, and Miles just took advantage of that position and that marriage to uh, his own uh, betterment. But he uh, set out to command the 5th Infantry Regiment in the West following the war, and he um, led troops against uh, many of the different tribes, principally the Sioux in 1876, the Sioux and Cheyennes, that is the Lakotas and Cheyennes, uh, who had uh, wiped out Custer at the Little Bighorn. He was in charge of the operations following Custer's defeat. He uh, later on uh, fought the Nez Perce Indians under Chief Joseph, the Bannock Indians, and he accepted the uh, surrender of Geronimo of the Apaches in 1886. So he had wide experience uh, with uh, Indian peoples in in a military sense. He was very respectful of the Lakotas because he had fought them uh, before. So in 1890, when he was appointed to uh, take charge of the situation, eventually erupted a wounded knee. He was a very well-known American. He was a national figure. 
and was accorded great respect within the Army, although the Army had many people who disagreed with Miles. And what were the, the feelings between General Miles and the Lakota during this time? Well, those who knew Miles, and as I say, Miles knew many of the older Lakotas in 1890 uh, because they had been uh, some of the leadership uh, that Miles had encountered earlier in the 1870s along the Yellowstone River. They uh, felt that uh, Miles uh, was a good officer whose word could be uh, accepted. And I think that Miles, by the time uh, he encountered the Lakotas in 1890 and 91, was a much senior commander. So he was not directly in the field. He operated out of his Chicago headquarters until the death of Sitting Bull. And then he decided to move his headquarters from Chicago out to Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, not far from the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation. And he monitored General Brooks' uh, operations down at Pine Ridge and uh, the other officers uh, elsewhere in, in that uh, particular area. Uh, he did not become uh, totally involved until after Wounded Knee when he shifted his uh, headquarters again from Rapid City down to the Pine Ridge Agency to take uh, direct command there of events that uh, followed Wounded Knee. Back after a word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rahl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? 
But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned to the interview. So as you were saying, before we took a quick side trip to talk about General Miles, the U.S. Cavalry finally finds Chief Spotted Elk, also known as Bigfoot, on December 28th. And under the command of Major Whitside, troops escort Bigfoot and his people eight miles away to the Wounded Knee site. And Whitside sets up a guard, contacts the Pine Ridge agent, and also asks for the rest of the 7th Cavalry for help in containing the situation. So this sets the stage for what happens the morning of December 29th, 1890. Let's talk about the day of the massacre. How did things unfold? Well, at uh, Wounded Knee on December 29th, the troops uh, surrounded the Indian camp the camp was uh, located by a very deep ravine, a wide ravine that was uh, largely a dry ravine, and they were located there so that the uh, women and children could have some privacy when they needed it. The troops were uh, to the north of this ravine, and they, they also had a cordon, a chain guard uh, surrounding the encampment. And the Indians were uh, virtually surrounded. In addition to the 7th Cavalry, which was actually Custer's old regiment, commanded by uh, Colonel James uh, Forsyth on this occasion, there was also the uh, 1st Artillery. And uh, there was a battery of the 1st Artillery there, uh, which uh, had four Hotchkiss guns, and they had been placed on the hill overlooking the camp. They were placed to the north on a rise of ground, a small, low-lying hill, to overlook the camp. Uh, all of these were in place on the morning of December 29th, and at about 8 a.m., Colonel Forsyth called all the male occupants to attend a council near his forces. There was an area that they used as a uh, kind of an open ground, a council area. And so the males all came in from the camp and sat in kind of a semicircular fashion, waiting to hear what Forsyth had to say. Forsyth addressed them, told them in a very temperate way that they were to give up their arms as well as their uh, animals, their horses. They were going to be marched to Pine Ridge. Unknowing to the people, Forsyth and Miles had arranged to instead march all the people after they surrendered their arms down to the railroad in western Nebraska. They were to board trains down there, cars, and be taken to Omaha, out of the area completely. That was the government plan, was to move them so that uh, they wouldn't have any influence on the other Indians, most of whom were not necessarily Ghost Dance uh, subscribers. The Indians went back to their camp on uh, direction from Forsyth, and rather than bringing their arms back, they brought what some people called a museum of antiques back. These were old guns that were defunct. 
some old flintlocks, some people called them blunderbusses, and tried to pass them off. And uh, Forsyth directed them that that was not what he wanted. He wanted the guns, and they claimed they didn't have guns. So Forsyth, at this point, had brought down two troops of the 7th Cavalry to form a cordon at the southern extremity of the council area to keep the Indians from just heedlessly going back and forth to their camp. He decided to send squads of men from these two uh, troops into the village to search for guns. And he did that, and I think about 45 or 50 uh, guns were collected and brought back to the council area. At this time, there was a medicine man. He has several names but nobody knows exactly what his name was, in fact. But he was a fairly powerful man in that camp circle. He started agitating it within the uh, council area and calling on the men to resist. Most of the older Lakotas decided to uh, go along with the troops. Chief Bigfoot, who was suffering from pneumonia, was brought out, and he pleaded for his people to do what the uh, whites wanted them to do. At this juncture, the uh, medicine man who had been going through these incantations of the ghost dance and who Forsyth had personally addressed and had told him to sit down and be quiet, he finally threw a handful of dirt heavenward, and as if that was a signal, many of the Indians in the council area, the men, pulled out their lever-action uh, repeaters and began shooting. And there was uh, one uh, deaf fellow, I believe, who didn't know what was going on, and I think the first shots came from him when two soldiers tried to wrestle his gun from his uh, hands, and a shot went out. And at that point, it seems like both sides fired at once at each other, and there was this immense explosion of fire, and the smoke, the black smoke from these weapons just filled the air. It did not blow away. It settled right on the ground, and as a firing increased from either side in that council area, most of the male Indians were killed at that point because they were in the council area. The army suffered 30 soldiers killed at the same time among those two troops that I mentioned of the 7th Cavalry. And the fighting, unfortunately, the way the troops and Indians were positioned when the firing began, the Indians fired right through that uh, cordon of soldiers, and many of those shots went into their own camp and killed many of their own people. Those men who survived in the council area, those Indian men who survived, had to fight hand-in-hand hand against that cordon of troops and to break through because they were all headed for that big ravine that I mentioned. Everybody started running for the ravine. That was the only hope of salvation for the Indians. And the firing uh, continued as the Indians uh, broke through the cordon. Those who, who could do so... The troops pivoted, firing uh, at them, and again fired into the women and children. And then uh, they began firing at anything that moved in that smoke. It was just a vast cloud of smoke. You could not distinguish uh, man or woman or horses or dogs or, or anything in that environment at that time. The fighting broke out about 9.15, and the first part of the what became the massacre, as, as the army now was shooting at everything they could, they could barely see in the smoke, 
and lasted about 20 minutes to half an hour. And then those Hotchkiss guns on top of the hill, they were unleashed, and they began firing both canister rounds and percussion shell, exploding percussion shell, at the people. And it was just a terrible, uh, devastating killing, and they just uh, raked the Lakota encampment and continued to drive people into that ravine, and they all began moving to the west, or most of them began moving west up the ravine, And in an area called the Pocket, there was another great killing field that began there. And this uh, lasted for probably a good hour, hour and 15 minutes, but gradually tapered off. And uh, most of the resistance uh, ended. Some of the people were able to get to ravines and contributory ravines and hide. But in the end... uh, at least 200 were killed by the Army's uh, calculation. We know that 146 were uh, eventually buried, actually on top of the hill there where the Hotchkiss guns had been located during the massacre. And it was a mass grave. Today it's a mass grave. It was a mass grave, I think it was three days after the massacre that the burials finally took place. Yes. And soldiers continued to pursue people well beyond the ravine, right? Colonel Forsyth sent troops to follow up those who had escaped, who he believed had gotten away. There were several attempts of groups of women and children and men, uh, primarily women and children and elderly men, uh, fleeing the scene. And after the uh, core of the fighting had died out, Forsyth sent uh, some of his men to pursue and to find those people who had uh, escaped. And in one case, at least, we know that a captain named uh, Godfrey, Edward Godfrey, took his uh, troop and about five miles to the west of Wounded Knee, cornered a woman and her three children in uh, bushes and foliage along White Horse Creek. All he knew was that they heard voices and they heard a rustling. So he ordered those people to come out, and he tried calling to them to come out, and nobody came out. So he ordered his troop of cavalry to fire on them, fire into that area. And once they did, they heard screams emanating, and they hurried forward, and they found this woman and her three children had been killed. And they actually had nothing to do with Wounded Knee. They were uh, Lakotas from uh, Pine Ridge, and they were not part of Bigfoot's people. So that was one of the kind of uh, complementary tragedies of Wounded Knee. There may have been other examples of that, but that was one that made the papers and called for an investigation. But again, it was not a lot of those. There are probably other examples, but... That's the one that I settled on. That's the one that we had the most information on. There were many different eyewitness accounts of the massacre. Is there a particular account that was most factual, in your opinion, and especially a moving account? Obviously, there were different accounts, both from the military side and from the Lakota side. Yes, there were very good accounts of Wounded Knee, and I was very interested in finding as many of those that I could. Military accounts are vary. Some are contained in uh, letters written by soldiers. 
Others are in reports of officers who were there and took part. They're very bureaucratic in term. But the ones in the letters are, I think, the most graphic. And there are diary entries also that uh, mention uh, Wounded Knee and describe it. Uh, This is uh, soldiers' uh, diaries that uh, mention it as having been a massacre. And they even refer to it as a massacre in their notations. Indian accounts are especially valuable, and I tried to seek out as many of those as I could. I think that two of the best are by Dewey Beard. I should say two groups of accounts. One is by Dewey Beard. His name was Iron Hale. He later changed his name to Dewey Beard. There's a new biography of him, incidentally. And I think he left at least three, maybe four accounts of Wounded Knee. And I use those because they're very poignant. His own wife and child were killed at Wounded Knee, a little baby. And I'd say another one is by a lady named Alice Ghost Horse, who came south with Bigfoot's band from the Cheyenne River Reservation. And she was a 13-year-old girl, and she describes her parents running with her into that big ravine at Wounded Knee, and she and her little brother, and how her father took her little brother and moved down the ravine to help others and came back and said that his little boy, his son, had been killed. And they all stopped and cried for a bit. And then uh, Alice's mother told Alice, said, we all ought to die here, and told Alice to stand up, and she did, and her father yelled at her to to get back down and pulled her down. And then he left to go back and help others try to escape. And somebody came and told them that he too had been killed. And so they all, again, cried for a little bit. Those are the words that uh, were used. So that was a a very uh, meaningful and poignant account, I think, uh, from Alice Ghost Horse. But I think those two accounts, if readers wanted to follow up on them, they would get a lot out of those two accounts. How did the the press cover the massacre, and how did the American people feel about what had happened? There were three uh, correspondents, civilian correspondents at Wounded Knee, who survived, penned their accounts in a trader's shack and near the uh, place where Wounded Knee occurred that very day. And their accounts, uh, when the uh, Army left the site, they went back to uh, Pine Ridge and sent uh, riders down to uh, Nebraska, to, sh- to uh, Rushville, to telegraph the word of Wounded Knee across the nation. And one of the accounts, I know, uh, is the one that most people read through the uh, press. And people learned about Wounded Knee, I think, within a day. And there was much uh, consternation. But it was interesting in the first editions of what happened at Wounded Knee, when they were talking about a massacre, they were talking about the Indians massacring the troops, those 30 men who had been killed. And uh, they weren't even addressing the fact that so many women and children had been killed. And as the word eventually circulated that so many non-combatants had been killed, it called for some kind of a reaction. And Miles, who was greatly perturbed, 
once he heard these accounts of the women and children being killed en masse, he called for a study, a court of inquiry, to be held in the field against Colonel Forsythe. And uh, because of that, and I was able to utilize the transcripts of that proceeding, uh, there was a lot of very important information about the uh, nuts and bolts of what happened uh, on the field there at Wounded Knee. Forsyth was removed from command for several weeks. The hierarchy in Washington did not accept uh, Miles' report of his investigation of Forsyth's uh, action at Wounded Knee and they were not in line with Miles at all. The commanding general of the Army and the Secretary of War both refused to uh, condemn Forsyth, and he was restored to command. He later was uh, promoted to brigadier general and and even major general before he retired. So obviously, time passes, views on events like this change. How did Wounded Knee affect the Lakota people in the years afterwards? Well, I think Wounded Knee has been a like an open sore ever since for the Lakotas. I don't think that they got their uh, just due as a result of what happened at Wounded Knee. Miles, as early as 1891, just a few days after the massacre, Miles had termed the event as a criminal, abominable uh, blunder and a horrible massacre of women and children. And as I said, it was a characterization that Washington, D.C. did not embrace. But nonetheless, Miles uh, continued to support the people. And years after his retirement, even in, I think, about 1916, he took an interest for the people to uh, receive some kind of compensation for what happened to them. And in the book, I go into what happened to the survivors for terms of recognition by the government and compensation for the human losses they endured. And this went all the way into the 1930s and 40s. Now, Miles died in 1925, so he didn't continue in that effort. But nonetheless, he was instrumental in uh, getting it started. And there was uh, legislation introduced uh, by uh, Congressman Francis Case of South Dakota in 1938. Your listeners may be interested to know that some of the wounded knee survivors lived until the late 1970s. And that's a fact that I found quite amazing. I think the last known uh, survivor died in 1979, and she was, of course, a little toddler at the time. But anyway, nothing came of the uh, attempt to compensate the victims because of the uh, Depression in the 30s and uh, later the national emergency of World War II in the early 1940s. And by then, most of those people were uh, getting up in age, and most of them died, died away. So uh, the government uh, has never even apologized for Wounded Knee. I think they've uh, issued regrets, but I think it's high time, 125 years, that the Lakota Sioux received an apology from the government. Do you have any recommendations for people thinking about maybe taking a summer trip out to South Dakota? What's the best way to visit the site, do you think? Certainly, I think people should visit uh, Wounded Knee. It's uh, fairly easy to get to. Unfortunately, one of the worst historical areas in terms of preservation today that I've seen, and largely because the BIA cut a 
highway exactly running directly through the uh, area of the uh, council where the fighting broke out that day. So there's a big highway running right through it. But right nearby is the uh, cemetery, the mass grave atop the low-lying hill just to the north of the highway. And people can uh, go up there and pay their uh, regards and sentiments. I like to take tobacco along and sprinkle it occasionally on the grave as an offering to the people who uh, died there. It's kind of a lonely place. The wind seems to be blowing uh, incessantly up there, but it's uh, also a peaceful place. And I think it uh, warrants uh, visitation so people can know and realize and understand what happened there. And I hope my book uh, helps point the way and explains uh, why it happened and how it happened and what happened afterwards. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, and I, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate the time with you, and it's been uh, very enjoyable. American Carnage, Wounded Knee, 1890, by Jerome A. Green, is available through Amazon and other bookstores. So that's that for the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Keep safe, my friends, and good day. you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.